Jim Bennett, welcome back to Mormon Discussion. How are you this morning? Um, well, I've got a big cold, so I may sound a little deeper than usual, but otherwise I'm all right. And you've got a deep voice to begin with, so let's. Uh, but you sound good, so let's see how this goes. All um, right. So, so last uh, last episode we talked at length about polygamy. Um, got into that issue. We've been sitting down with Jim Bennett. If you're just tuning in now for episode number five, uh, my suggestion would be to go back and start with episode one, work your way through. But uh, if if not the case, if you just wanted to hear this particular issue discussed, uh, Jim Bennett uh, offered a response to Jeremy Runnels in the CES letter. And uh, Jim has been kind enough to sit down with us and to go through some of these major issues that that letter covers and how, how Jim makes those issues work, as well as just a frank conversation between the two of us uh, regarding uh, these issues and, and kind of the complexities around them. Today, we wanted to spend time talking about the race and the priesthood ban, and I'm hopeful we'll also cover the uh, LGBT policies and doctrines in the LDS Church as well with Jim, uh, and I think we can do that. I want to start off, Jim, I'm hoping that we can form kind of where you stand to begin with. Because I think with the race and priesthood issue, one thing I've noticed among apologists or defenders of the faith is they will operate as if one reconciliation is good on one point, And then when that reconciliation becomes kind of problematic in another area, then they defend a different reconciliation. But then those two reconciliations seem to contradict each other. And so I want to start with uh, just some overall issues in the church that surround the race and the priesthood. Uh, And and let's start first with the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon has language that talks about skin being cursed, that when the curse is removed, that one would be white and delightsome, that's been changed to pure and delightsome. Uh, There is language not in just one or two or three places, but there is language in what I would consider a multitude of occasions where uh, darker skin in the Book of Mormon is seen as unrighteousness and a cursing of some sort. And it does use the language that to the reader appears to be a literal uh, statement of skin color. And then there's also, again, on the other side of that, that when these curses are removed, that one's skin would become white, uh, that their righteousness would be seen by this indication. And I've, I've heard apologetic responses of various sorts. One is that the Nephites were just as racist as uh, LDS leaders, perhaps, as we get into this issue, LDS leaders, perhaps, from the ban in 1852 up until Spencer W. Kimball. Um, I've heard apologists say that those words don't mean that. They simply are talking about righteousness and unrighteousness, and it's Joseph as a translator who uh, misunderstands it and imposes it a certain way, but it's really not to be understood that way. But I personally, and again, we can talk about it, I personally find that difficult. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the Book of Mormon first as we begin on how it handles race. Well, it's really interesting to me when people try to use the Book of Mormon as some kind of justification for the priesthood ban, because they're really quite separate things. Uh, the Book of Mormon isn't talking about anybody from with African descent during the 2012 presidential campaign, when Mitt Romney was coming under fire, uh, there were groups that would quote the Book of Mormon and say, well, see, this was your justification for the priesthood ban. And the Book of Mormon is referencing uh, ancestors of Native Americans 
And so it's interesting to me, it's always been interesting to me that the verses in the Book of Mormon that are explicitly racist, and I don't think there's any way to say that that those verses aren't explicitly racist, whether that racism is Nephite racism or Joseph Smith's racism, uh, I think that's an ancillary discussion to some degree. But uh, the Book of Mormon makes it very clear that these people that are described in racist terms in a number of different places are people with a grand destiny who are children of Israel, who uh, you know have great promises from the Lord and are supposed to usher in the millennium. So the Book of Mormon is a far more racially complex document than I think it's it's given credit for. I, I, the, the fact that Second uh, Nephi, I'm going to get the verse wrong, but all are alike unto God. God denieth none who come unto him, black and white, bond and free. Uh, that's been in the Book of Mormon since the day it was published, and it's largely been ignored uh, for a great deal of time by people who were looking for reasons to be to discriminate against people who were racially different from them. So, so I, I mean, I'm happy to talk about that and get into that. I, I think that the references in the Book of Mormon uh, are, are worthy of discussion. But if the if the issue is the priesthood ban, uh, those verses were never used as justification for denying priesthood for, to people of African descent. And so I think we, we end up muddying the water a little bit when we start trying to use the Book of Mormon as justification for the priesthood ban, which, as far as I can tell, there's absolutely no revelation uh, that begins the priesthood ban. There's a revelation that ends it, but there isn't any kind of a revelation that begins it. Right. And I, and so I want to, I want to agree with you that I don't see the book of Mormon as the, at least not the primary, maybe, maybe it's more tangential than that. And I don't even know that that's the case, but it certainly isn't a primary resource for how LDS leaders frame it. But what I do think it does is it does give us some insight into how LDS leaders, as they interpret the book of Mormon, how they're reacting within the culture of their day. And so I, I grant all that to you, but I, I'm still curious. Do you, do you see, I don't know that it impacts the priesthood ban and how the church has handled that necessarily, but I also want to get into how the church handles the issue of race itself, because I think that gives context to how we understand this issue. I'm just right. curious if you see the Book of Mormon, do you think the writers or the translator meant those ideas literally or... Are, are you personally unsure or? Uh... No, well, I think you have to take it verse by verse to some degree. I mean, the Book of Mormon, I mean, when you start highlighting the racial differences, it was very clear, particularly in Second Nephi chapter 5, where you're first introduced to this idea that the Lamanites are cursed and they are separated from the Nephites. And I... The idea, I think, is that skin color was supposed to be designed to keep Lamanites and Nephites separate. And and the Nephites very clearly, at least in those verses, equate skin color with righteousness. The darker skin is less righteous. And that's always kind of made me chuckle a little bit because I'm the palest person that has ever lived. So if skin color, if light skin color is a mark of righteousness... I'm going straight to the celestial kingdom. 
There's there, you know, no stopping me. I, I, I look at that and I think it's ridiculous. And I think as, as you look at, at the book of Mormon throughout in context, you look at Samuel, the Lamanite, for instance, who's the only prophet that the only Lamanite or, or, or the only, you know, Lehite prophet that the savior himself demands be included in the record. Uh, he may very well be the most righteous prophet in the entire Book of Mormon, and he's a Lamanite, and we have no indication that his skin is lighter or darker than any other Lamanites. And it, it, it's very clear. And then by the end of the Book of Mormon, the designation of Lamanite is no longer a racial designation. You have in in Third Nephi that everybody's living together, and there are no manner of ites. And so all of a sudden, when the Lamanites resurface after a period of righteousness in third Nephi, or in fourth Nephi, I'm sorry, uh, the Lamanites are just people who no longer follow God. It's not a racial distinction anymore. So racial distinctions in the Book of Mormon, by the time the Savior comes, I think the Nephites, who very were very eager to make racial distinctions early on, uh, have learned that that's no longer necessary or, or, and probably never was necessary. That unity requires overlooking or, or not caring about skin color or anything else. And then the designations that happen after that are no longer racial. They have to do with what people choose to, how people choose to worship the Lord or not worship the Lord. So I think the Book of Mormon in and of itself to isolate the more racist elements of it, and I and I agree that they are there, and I think racism has been with us as a as a society of human beings from the beginning of time, and so you see elements of that in Nephite culture and Lamanite culture, and you've seen elements of that certainly in the 19th century. You see elements of that now, uh, I, and I think the Book of Mormon makes it clear that by the time that we're a people that are willing to receive Christ, those kinds of racist bigotries go away. And so I think you need to look at the Book of Mormon in a larger context to be able to judge it appropriately with regard to what it has to say about race. Beautiful. That it's essentially a journey of God's people on this particular issue, for instance, developing and ridding themselves of those things which they hold to be true, but in the end turn out not to be, and they have to make adjustments. That's, that's exactly right. right Beautiful. Thing. Beautiful. Um, let's go to the race and priesthood ban itself. So uh, we have these theories, this idea of, of those of color being less valiant in the premortal life. We've got a multitude of prophets who teach that. Uh, right. That these, we, we use this term, and it's so... Uh, it's so offensive, but to use this term fence sitter in the pre-mortal life, right? And so um, there's these theories, and the theories essentially are, one, that those of color had the curse of Cain. There's the theory that they uh, were less valiant in the pre-mortal life, that they were more valiant than those who uh, chose Satan and went his direction with him, uh, but they were less valiant than those of us who are white. And there's also this idea that interracial marriage is sin for the reason of mixing seed. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on the theories. I think you've already established this in prior episodes, but your thoughts on where those uh, three things come from, 
maybe even how they got there and uh, anything else you'd like to add just on, on that particular uh, concept. Right. Uh, I don't know that we're going to disagree very much today uh, because I think all of those, of those theories are abhorrent. And the church has taken the step that, that's a really unusual step for the church, you know, a, a church that Dallin Oak says never issues apologies. They have yet to issue an apology for the, for the priesthood ban, but they've come right up to the line of issuing an apology by admitting that every single one of those theories is completely bunk, that we don't stand by any of that. We don't believe that blacks are cursed, that, that they bear the curse of Cain, or that they're uh, less valiant or any of that kind of nonsense. And, you know, as I grew up with this, uh, I was, I was 10 years old when the, well, I was, I was not quite 10 years old when the priesthood ban was, was lifted and I didn't know it existed. I, I, I was living in Los Angeles, uh, and you know, I, I was in a relatively multi multicultural area and it never occurred to me that, uh, that I, when, when I found out about the priesthood ban, I was, I was embarrassed to, I was embarrassed to be Mormon around my black friends. I thought, what, what if they knew what my church has taught that, uh, that somehow they're less righteous or any of this kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, you know, you know, I, I, I've never ever been comfortable with the priesthood ban. I've never been comfortable with the explanations for it, but I've tried to wrestle with them. You know, my great grandfather, one of them is David O. McKay. And I grew up with the story, uh, of my grandmother who was on the primary, uh, general primary board. This was David O. McKay's daughter-in-law. Uh, and she said, it's, it's terrible that these, these black children aren't allowed, you know, when they turn 12, the black boys aren't allowed to become deacons. And David O'McKay said, yeah, I think it is too. And so my parents would tell me that story and say, so clearly David O'McKay wanted to lift the priesthood ban, and so clearly it was of God and we just can't understand it. And that was sort of enough for a while. And as I got older and I recognized what had gone into the priesthood ban and how it was, how it was implemented and all of this kind of thing. I also read a wonderful book, David O. McKay and the rise of modern Mormonism. Have you read that book? Yeah. Greg, uh, Gregory Prince, Gregory Prince and David O. McKay and the rise of modern Mormonism makes it very clear that David O. McKay was a segregationist. And I read that and I say, well, he's a segregationist. So if he's, and, and he was clearly opposed to interracial marriage. He's clearly opposed to the idea of allowing black people to be entirely equal to white people. And I thought, well, if he's praying for a revelation, he's praying for a revelation that has conditions on it. One that says, well, yes, can we allow black people to have the priesthood, but still not allow them to marry white people and still make sure that they're kept in their place or whatever else. Uh, and I look at that and go, well, of course, of course, there's no revelation that allows people to maintain their bigotries uh, in making and in, in extending these blessings to black people. I, I mean, it, so as I look at it, 
the, the way that I, that I, I look at it is the, the idea, you know, I also grew up in an area that was predominantly Jewish. And, uh, we used to get all of the Jewish holidays off for, for school, which was wonderful. We'd always go to Disneyland on Yom Kippur because no one was there. Uh, and, uh, I, I, my debate teacher in ninth grade used to say, I love the Mormons because there's, they're the Jews first cousins because we liken ourselves to Israel. We consider ourselves modern Israel. And I look back at, at Israel, you go back to the, the Old Testament and the children of Israel, the covenant people. And the one thing that, that is the hallmark of the covenant people is that they're constantly whining and they're constantly complaining. And I, you look at them and you go, what, the, the, these are the Lord's people? This is the best the Lord can do? And they, at one point, demand, we want to be like other nations and we want to have a king. And the prophet comes back and says, if you have a king, it's going to be a terrible thing. Look what a king's going to be, do to you. And Israel says, we don't care. We still want a king. And then the Lord goes ahead and says, okay, well, I'll help you pick the king. And I've looked at that and thought, well, that's bizarre. But what the Lord is doing there is saying, okay, if you're not willing to give up your prejudices, if you're not willing to do this, then I'm going to let you live with the consequences of it. You get the same kind of thing in Jacob chapter 4, where the revelation says that because they desired it, the Lord hath done it, that they may stumble. And Israel had a king for 400 years. We only had a priesthood ban for a little over a century. Uh, but uh, I, I look at that and I say, okay, how could this happen? And how could the Lord allow it? And I say the same way that Israel had a king is that the the early Latter-day Saints, the, the idea that black people were the descendants of Cain did not originate with Brigham Young and did not originate with members of the church. It was a common 19th century justification for slavery, which Brigham Young very clearly believed. And, and a lot of the critics of the church, Paul Reeve has written a really wonderful book about this, where he, where he identifies that, that in the 19th century, Mormons were being sort of isolated as a separate race. And it's kind of hard for us to understand this in the 21st century. But the racial distinctions, uh, you know, were, were, were very clear back then, and, and people were subhuman if they were of certain racial qualifications. And Paul Reeve makes the argument that I think is compelling, that Brigham Young was just trying to assert uh, his whiteness, the idea that, that they were not an inferior race. And to do that, they uh, adopted the racist justifications of the time and tried to be more white than white. And this was a desire of Brigham Young to be like other nations in the same way that the Ancient Israelites wanted to have a king, and, and the Lord allowed him to do it, that we may stumble. And I think we've stumbled, and we've stumbled very, very hard as a result of this. So, Yeah. No, no that's, I think that's great. And, and it sounds like you've already kind of answered my next question, which is, you know, we've, we talked about the theories, and you're saying, like, look, we, we messed up. Those are just racist. We adopted them. We held them. Uh, way longer than we should have, and and that's on us. 
Um, and you seem well, to be also talking. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, and in addition to that, people always say, well, you know, Daniel Peterson, for instance, says, I, I might accept that the original um, implementation of the ban was a mistake, but I can't accept that the Lord allowed it to endure for that long. And I, I hear that from a number of people. And my reaction to that is, uh, the, I don't think anybody before David O. McKay even thought to question it. The idea that black and white people were equal was not something that either black or white people really uh, were pursuing for a great deal of time. I mean, well, that that's a little harsher than I want it to be because I think black people desperately wanted to be recognized as equals. Uh, but but white people, the culture of the time in the early 20th century was such that interracial marriage was abhorrent to just about every white person that lived at the time. I mean, it didn't even occur to them to think of equality on the kinds of terms that we now recognize are important to think of it today. So I think one of the reasons why it endured is it didn't even occur to leaders of the church to question it, which I think is to our everlasting shame. But I think that it's also consistent with the mores of the time. And it's, uh, but I, I, I see no reason to defend it. I see no reason to look at it and go, Oh well, now, yeah, this was a great thing. I think it was a terrible thing, and and I and I, and I you know, I, I see no reason to think otherwise. Yeah, and and so saying that about the theories, and it seems like you're saying that about the ban itself. That seems obvious anyway. And I want to, but I want to ask you, you, you then consider the ban itself to not have God behind it? Yes, to some, yes. However. Uh, I have a slight qualification to that in that just as God was allowed Israel to have a king, uh, God essentially said, as I referenced Jacob chapter 4, essentially said, if you want this, then you're going to have to live with the consequences of this. And if you want to lift it, uh, you're going to have to completely abandon the racism behind it. Because I, I very much believe that Spencer W. Kimball's revelation was indeed a revelation, lifting the ban. But the reason why it took that long to get the revelation is that he wasn't willing, God was not willing to compromise with David O. McKay or anybody else and say, yes, you can lift the ban to some degree, but you can still keep blacks in their place to some degree which I think is what David O. McKay was asking for. I, I mean, I can't judge any of these men's hearts. And, and so, but that's, that's essentially my theory and my understanding of it is that God was not willing to give that revelation to anyone who was not willing to allow blacks to be completely equal to whites in every respect. And that's what the 1978 revelation did. Although it, it, we you still see the lingering effects of the century of racism as people you know even recently the BYU professor who was interviewed by the Washington Post you remember that yeah uh, yeah yep uh, I think he ended up losing his job over that and ended up losing his job over that but he was essentially just saying things that the church had been saying for over a century and the church is now embarrassed by all of that. 
and rightly so, I think. But but the actual revelation, the actual extending of the blessings, I think God was saying, okay, if you want to deny these blessings, I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you get rid of this by half measure. I'm going to demand that you you recognize the complete equality and the principle that you've ignored in the Book of Mormon that all are alike unto God. Until you can recognize that, I'm going to let you stew in your own juices and live with your errors until you're able to completely repudiate them. So that's where I think God's hand in it was. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think he had anything to do with its implementation, but he wasn't willing to lift it until we were re- willing to accept the consequences of what we had done. Gotcha. And you're and the listener is going to definitely hear this. You may be hearing it. We've got a landscape crew outside cleaning, so you may hear a blower. Oh, I haven't heard that yet. But anyway, we'll we'll continue. Um, so I appreciate that, and and I think you're offering there what I think is the most reasonable way to reconcile this uh, in a way that one can can be faithful and maintain faith in the church. But it but it presents some problems that we need to go through and. And, and it, I don't think it takes your solution uh, off the table per se, but I think it complicates it a lot more, which is, let me start with this idea, which um, is the idea of being led astray. So you have Wilford Woodruff uh, and others who have perpetuated this teaching, and it's in our manuals, and it seems to be a, I want to say a doctrine, but it at least is a, a belief that the church wants to hold on to and maintain is true, because I think it reinforces the authority of the present leader, which is that the the Lord will never permit uh, his prophet to lead the church astray. And I'd love to know whether you agree with that first, and then if you agree with it, you seem to be acknowledging like God allows his prophets to go uh, off the rails to some extent on these things. And so whatever it means to go astray must be something even more serious. And I wanted to have a conversation about what that meant to you. Well, you know, I, I, I keep going back to the children of Israel because you look at the relationship between the covenant people of the Lord in the Old Testament and the covenant people of the Lord today as acknowledged by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And the covenant people of the Lord in the Old Testament times wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and did all, complained the whole time and whined and moaned and did all this kind of thing. And the idea that th- th- this whole idea of being led astray is really an, an interesting one because it, it ends up being equated with infallibility that that if you define not being led astray as being uh, the Lord will never allow a prophet to make a mistake, uh, that I think flies in the face of the central doctrines of the church, which is that we came down here to exercise agency. And for a prophet not to be able to make a mistake, the prophet would have to have his agency extracted from him at some point. And I'm, I, and I'm not sure where that process begins. Does it begin when he's called as a 70 or when he becomes an apostle? At what point is your agency removed where you can no longer make any kind of mistake? And, and what's interesting is that when I talk to people about that, 
remember having a conversation with a family member who said, well, of course, they can make mistakes. They just don't make mistakes. <laughs> I said, well, what does that mean? And the response is, well, it, they, they just don't. The Lord would never call someone who would make a mistake. And my response is, they already have. He already has. He already has called prophets who've made not just – because then, then you get into the idea, yeah, oh, yeah, they can make mistakes, but they can only make little ones. You know, they can forget your name or they can forget your birthday or they can, you know, give you wrong directions to get to their house. But when it comes to doctrine, they can't ever make a mistake. And that's just simply not true. Uh, and not only is it not true, it flies in the face of the doctrine of agency. And you, you look at the way the Lord has dealt with his people throughout all of history and throughout all of Scripture and you find people, you know, you, you find the children of Israel, you find the Nephites, you find all of these people who make terrible mistakes and fall into pride and do all kinds of terrible things. And the Lord is constantly having to use those mistakes and errors to teach them and school them in order to be able to prepare them uh, to be the kind of righteous people he wants them to be. So it, it's, it's interesting because... The, the the whole idea of not being led astray, Brigham Young, I'm trying to pull it up here because I, I was just reading this the other day. Brigham Young talked about the idea that um, the Lord would never allow a prophet to knowingly lead his people astray. And Brigham Young adds the knowingly in there, which I think is interesting and I think actually helps us understand what the prophet does, because I think, I think that is true. I think a prophet that, that, that if the prophet decides, okay, I'm going to deliberately lead this church down to hell. I'm going to deliberately teach things to destroy the faith or destroy the souls of these people that I think that that would be an instance where the Lord would remove the prophet. I think all of the mistakes that the prophets have made have been well-intentioned mistakes. I believe that they have been mistakes where the prophets have thought they have been doing the will of the Lord and have been mistaken at times. Uh, and I think that most of those times are relatively innocuous. But in the case of the priesthood ban, particularly, it's not at all innocuous. It's very serious. But I do believe that Brigham Young believed at the time that that was the will of the Lord, and he was mistaken. So, so the idea that, that any idea that, that prophets are infallible, I think always needs to be challenged, always needs to be questioned because infallibility and agency are entirely incompatible. And so it, it, and it also gets down to this idea of what doctrine is. It's saying, okay, well, is this, is this policy or is this a doctrine? And the word doctrine has this sort of magical weight to it that assumes that if something is a doctrine, then it is, it is entirely free of error. It, it in and of itself is somehow infallible. It can never be questioned. It can never be changed. And I don't see any evidence that the Lord has ever communicated uh, the idea that we are always free from error, that there is something that is completely free from error and that can never be improved. 
I see precisely the opposite, this idea that we learn line upon line, precept on precept. The Lord will, there are many great things to be revealed in the, fu- in the future. And so I, I, I think this church, more than any other church, ought to recognize uh, the possibility of error and the possibility that there is more to be revealed and that there is more to learn. And when we learn something more, it will correct errors that have been perpetuated uh, previously. So, so I look at that, and the way I interpret the Lord will never lead us astray, or the prophet will never lead us astray, is that the prophet will always be doing everything he can and will always believe he is following the Lord. But I do not interpret that to mean the, the, the prophet will never make mistakes or that he can't make serious mistakes, because I think the prophet can do both of those things and has done both of those things. Perfect. And again, I think that's the most tenable position to hold. Uh, in fact, I would say any other position is completely untenable. Um, so you're in agreement then that false doctrine can be originated by a prophet, can be perpetuated uh, by the leadership of the church and the institution collectively, meaning all 15 men, generation after generation, that those false doctrines that originated with that whatever prophet starts it can be deeply harmful and offensive and can also be a barrier between the people and receiving of the saving ordinances, which I think, and the reason I'm framing it that way is because I think the listener needs to understand just how serious the mistakes can be. And and I agree with you that um, it's the only way to reconcile all of this is to allow these men to be this extreme in their errors. Um, but I want to at least have you speak to that. You You would essentially agree, generation after generation, false doctrines that deeply harm, offend, and are even a barrier to the saving ordinances can be originated by uh, a prophet and be perpetuated by the leadership of the church, all 15 men collectively generation after generation. Well, I want to agree uh, with two qualifications. The first being that the Lord uh, is more than capable of cleaning up after the mess that his servants make. Uh, so, I mean, you talk about the denial of saving ordinances and yes, for over a hundred years, uh, saving ordinances of the gospel were denied to a whole race of people. Uh, those saving ordinances will be provided to that whole race of people uh, prior to the coming of the Lord, or or at least in the millennium. I mean, eventually, the Lord cleans up after that. That mistake will be rectified. Uh, I, I also want to point out that I, I fully believe that these 15 men get a whole lot more right then they get wrong. Because I think when we start talking about this, when I agree with you, it sounds like I'm saying that this is predominantly the the action of these 15 men when I think precisely the opposite. I think they've gotten a, a great deal right. I think that they do a great deal of good. And I think that they have been given an overwhelming responsibility that uh, requires, uh, you know, that... The, the, requires a lifetime commitment that most people don't have to make. And most people would would find themselves overwhelmed if that calling were to come to them. So so I I I, I have to agree with you because 
it's absolutely true, but I, I think it's important to also put that in the broader context of the idea that these men get a great deal more right than they get wrong. Perfect. Um, I, I want to, and, and these may seem like we're off in the weeds, but I think it's important only because I, I think even in the present moment, we're still wrestling with this issue in terms of how the church collectively presents the ban itself to its membership. So when the race and priesthood essay came out, I think it was 2013, um, soon after the very next general conference or the conference after that, and then the one following it, we get two quotes, one from Elder Christofferson and one from Elder Anderson, and they seem to be responding directly to the race and priesthood essay, which was causing people who read it, it was kind of the first time anyone in the church could read something official by the church that was disavowing these theories that all of us uh, who didn't know any better perpetuated even in 2012 and before. Um, in other words, the church had never told us. I mean, you have Elder McConkie in, in 1980, I think, or 81, standing up at a BYU conference and saying, forget all we've ever said. But, but nobody's ever come in specifically and said, look, we used to teach these things as true, and those things are no longer true. Please don't teach them anymore. And then all of a sudden, this race and priesthood essay shows up in 2013, and, and a lot of us as members of the church were still trying to make sense of this thing, and suddenly our current leadership is saying, okay, we moved, and we moved a long time ago, I think, but we've just never told you. And, and I think it caught people off guard, and people have... Um, it's been a, it's been a loss of faith issue for those who encountered this essay and weren't reading some of this deeper stuff leading up to it. So with that said, Elder Christofferson comes in in a conference soon after, and he says this, he says, at the same time, it should be remembered that not every statement made by a church leader, past or present necessarily constitutes doctrine. It is commonly understood in the church that a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents personal though well-considered opinion, not meant to be official or binding for the whole church. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that a prophet is a prophet only when he is acting as such. And I simply want to, I'm assuming you're going to agree with this. Um, I like the statement. It creates a little more room than I think exists before a statement like this is taught. But I still think this statement falls deeply short, and here's why. One is that on this particular issue, it wasn't just one person teaching it. It was all 15 men collectively as an institution, generation after generation, and they used words like in the uh, Lowry Nelson correspondence, as well as, which was a private correspondence, as well as the 1949 First Presidency letter, as well as 1951 correspondence by the First Presidency to the church generally. Um, they used the words doctrine and it seems apparent to me that George Albert Smith and probably every other leader before, let's say, David O. McKay, because I think he's the first one we get public recognition that he's at least asking and considering something. Well, and he's the one who actually wrote in a letter, but it was a private correspondence, that it was a policy and not a doctrine. And many people have hung their hats on that. I, but I, to me, that distinction is kind of irrelevant. It's cert doctrine just means teaching. It was clearly the teaching of the church that blacks were descendants of Cain and everything else. I have a cousin who served a mission in Brazil who uh, they ended up teaching a whole lot of black investigators, and they actually had uh, – I have to get him to, 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 to confirm this firsthand, but 
I seem to recall that there they had a Mark of Cain discussion that they had in their back pocket whenever they were teaching black investigators. You know, this was clearly something that was taught officially by the church for a great deal of time. No question. Right. So it's not it's it's not accurate on Elder Christofferson's part to act like, look, some of these things were just one guy off over there that we also need to acknowledge that uh, the doctrine of the church, if we understand doctrine as those things that are true, and I think he's trying to frame it that way, and, and I don't really want to debate that. If you don't want to disagree, that's fine. But um, it feels as if we're trying to say, like, sometimes one guy says something, and yeah, it's well considered and thought out, but it's just, it does not it's not binding on the church. Here's the trouble. The, the 1949 First Presidency Letter, uh, August 17th, 1949, the attitude of the church with reference to the Negroes remains as, as it has always stood. It is not a matter, matter of declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord. So on some level, George Albert Smith, prophet of the Lord, believes this is a commandment of God and hence is true doctrine. And, and that's the way he's posing it. So you would agree that Elder Christofferson, while speaking a truth, that one thing written by one leader, you know, we should think of it and consider it and um, be careful about disavowing it, but recognize that one leader doesn't speak for the church. Um, that at times false doctrines have been taught by all 15 men, generation after generation, which you seem to have already agreed with that anyway. Well, Elder Christofferson's statement, uh, I mean, he doesn't directly reference the priesthood ban. I think people draw that inference, and I think they're probably correct to draw that inference. Uh, but there's nothing in Elder Christofferson's statement that I disagree with. I, I would, and I think you would, add it's also possible for all 15 men to say things that are incorrect. Uh, but taken in isolation, what Elder Christofferson says it isn't particularly objectionable to me, but I, I, I want to get to a larger principle here, which is the idea that I think when people finally say, okay, is the prophet speaking as a prophet here, or is he speaking as a man? Or when they say, okay, is this a policy, or is this a doctrine? I think they're trying to find an element of infallibility in it that when a prophet is speaking as a prophet, he's somehow no longer speaking as a man, that he's no longer capable of error because he's speaking as a prophet, or that if a, a doctrine is a doctrine and not a policy, that it is, <coughs> it is eternal and can only be interpreted in one way uh, and is, doesn't require any additional spiritual effort on my part to understand or appreciate. I think whenever anybody does that, they're sort of punting their own spiritual responsibility to gain a testimony and to gain a, a proper understanding of what it is the Lord wants them to know through direct contact with the Lord, not through just saying, well, George Albert Smith said this was good, so it's good enough for me. I don't think we are ever supposed to just do that. I think we are always supposed to get our own testimony and reach out to the Lord himself and get our own understanding of doctrines and of teachings. And I think we are to listen to and respect the authority of those who teach us, but the responsibility to have an understanding of what those doctrines mean and their truthfulness ultimately lies individually with each member of the church. 
So whenever this comes up and whenever these things are discussed and whenever we're trying to talk about, well, gee, is the prophet acting as a prophet or is this really doctrine? Uh, I, I always see that as a call for greater responsibility among the members of the church to have their own testimonies rooted in direct experience with the Lord and that they have just as much access to heaven as the 15 men who lead this church have. And they need to recognize that and exercise that if they, if they want to have the kind of testimony and the kind of relationship with the Lord that the Lord wants us to have. So I, I, I agree, even as, a, even as one who no longer is inside the church, I, I'm going to fully agree with that. I, I, too, think that people need to think for themselves and need to be spiritually in tune with Heavenly Father to know when things are on the up and up and when things are uh, not exactly where God would have them be. Like, I get that. It's, a, it's an individual responsibility. The trouble is when we say, like, when the rubber meets the road, which is if you as a lay member, let's say 10% of the lay members come to the decision that we are just deeply hurting people. So whether we're talking about, say, Brigham Young's blood atonement doctrines, which uh, I don't know if we would argue on that, but it, it seems apparent that Brigham Young taught a level of violence tied to theology that you and I would not uh, endorse at this point, right? Like, Well, yeah, except it also seems that Brigham Young was just was relying on rhetorical excess because you don't see massive practice. I don't even think you see uh, the, the, the essay that, that mentions blood atonement says there is one documented instance of somebody doing that, but that doesn't say what that documented instance was. But the idea that this was a, a doctrine that Brigham Young taught and was practiced is belied by the fact that it wasn't really practiced. And I think the people listening to Brigham Young recognized that as the kind of rhetorical excess that it was intended to be. <laughs> I see that as Brigham Young spouting off and going too far and spouting off, but I don't see that as Brigham Young instituting a doctrine that became a, a that, that was, that was implemented in practice. Okay. So at least agreeing that on some level he taught it. And again, I'll, I'll even concede that it's not, we don't have any direct examples beyond maybe one, of him implementing it or others around him implementing it, knowing that on some level he taught it, knowing on some level that uh, we have this race and priesthood, knowing on some level you've already mentioned that you struggle with the LGBT policy in 2015, which also hurts people. And I think, I think you yes. would agree uh, on some level contributes to the emotional non-well-being of our LGBT members and maybe, and, and almost cer certainly is a factor in some of these suicides, if not a dominant factor. I would agree 100% with that. Yeah. So in recognizing that the church is hurting people at various times in its existence, and you saying like, hey, everybody has a individual responsibility to decide what's right and what's wrong. My argument back would be when the rubber meets the road, there's real, there's no real way the church gives us to raise a hand and to say, we're not going to hurt these people anymore. Like, like, yeah, you can think it, you can keep it inside your head. You can 
disagree in the most soft language that allows people to continue their beliefs, but there's no real way to put your foot down and say like, I'm going to push for this to end because this is not okay. And I, and I got to believe, I know there's this argument that Jesus allows us to mess up and God is allowing us to mess up because people have their agency. But at the same time, I also would think Jesus would expect me as an individual inside the church to raise my hand and to say, I'm not going to go along with us hurting these people this way. I'm just curious if you would admit like there really isn't a functional way to do anything once you decide from God that something's not right. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the, uh, of the way to frame this. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges of discipleship is recognizing that sustaining leaders does not require agreeing with leaders. And, and what I mean by that is I, I think, for instance, if, if in 1965 I had decided, okay, we are hurting black people by not giving them these saving ordinances, I'm going to ordain them to the priesthood. I'm going to defy my church leaders, and I am not going to abide by uh, this policy or doctrine or whatever we want to call it, and I'm going to go rogue and, and do all of this. Uh uh, I would be removed from the church because I would not be sustaining my leaders and recognizing their authority. Uh, I think that church leaders have the authority to do what they have done and that in most instances they have exercised that authority appropriately and done the right thing. But in these cases, in the case of race and the priesthood, and in I believe in the case now of of particularly the policy implemented in 2015, uh, they are doing something that I fundamentally disagree with that I would agree is hurting people. And I wrestled with this more than I think I've wrestled with anything else. I mean, with the priesthood ban, I wasn't aware of it uh, in order to wrestle with it. Uh, I was too young to recognize what it was, or I didn't even know it existed. Um, but this, I, I certainly knew it existed, and I... I uh, you know, I, 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 I've had all kinds of experiences uh, in the theater community, particularly. I think I, I've spent more time around LGBT people than than most members of the church would. And I mean, I, I that sounds a little bit like some of my best friends are gay, and that's always a terrible thing. That sounds dismissive. But the reality is that uh, I love and appreciate a number of LGBT people. And uh, recognize that uh, these are, I, I have yet to meet anybody of any orientation that has ever chosen which sex they're going to find attractive. You know, I, you know, when I talk to people who, who, who think that homosexuality is a choice, I say, okay, well, at what point did you decide to be straight? I mean, nobody ever makes that decision. It's something that comes to them when they find who they're attracted to, and it's not something that anybody makes a choice about. Now, they certainly choose how they act on it, but that's a, that's a whole other separate discussion. Anyway, when the 2015 policy came out, which not only, I think, was punitive towards LGBT people, but 
it was punishing innocence. I mean, complete innocence. If, if you want to say that being gay is a sin, and I don't believe that, but if you want to say that, then why would you punish the innocent children of people who are gay? Uh, straight children. You're, you're denying them blessings for no reason at all, and, and which seem to fly in the face of the second article of faith, which says we believe men will be punished for their own sins and not for anybody else's. And the whole idea that the Savior said, suffer the little children and forbid them not to come unto me. Uh, it's it, it was just stunning to me, and I really wrestled with it. And and uh, as I said in the previous discussion, I was surprised at how many people were eager to see me gone because I was having a problem with this. Uh, and I can probably count on one hand the number of times where I feel like I have gotten a clear, distinct answer to a prayer that that was genuinely revelatory, that I felt like, okay, the Lord is speaking directly to me, and I'm getting a very clear message. And the very clear message I got on this occasion after a great deal of struggle uh, was a very peaceful, clear message from the Lord uh Asking, I mean, if I put it into words, the words would be, be patient, it will all work out in the end. Now, I don't know what when in the end means or when it will all work out, but the, 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 the command I've received from the Lord is patience. I need to be patient with my leaders. I need to be patient with the church. And, and so that's where I am. But I also... Uh, I, you know, when, whenever this comes up, it was interesting because after I wrote my reply to the CES letter, I, I got a Facebook message from somebody who had argued with me quite extensively when I was writing about my frustrations with the, uh, exclusionary policy of 2015. And he wrote me a message and he said, Oh, I'm so glad to see you've come back. And I said, well, what do you mean that come back? And he says, well, you know, you were, you were gone there for a while, and now you've come back. And I said, no, I'm exactly where I was in 2015. I still am entirely opposed to this policy, uh, but I, I'm not going to leave the church. I'm going to be patient with the church. I'm going to be patient with my leaders as they are patient with me. And I also see my own responsibility one-on-one -on -one in ministering to the LGBT community and in, in talking to my friends, I am not going to judge. I am not going to exclude. Uh, I am not, you know, so, so in, in terms of my own personal conduct, I do not have the power to uh, include them in full participation in the church. If I had that power, I would include them, but I don't. And, <clears throat> but on an individual level, I am not going to, I am not going to judge. I am not going to exclude and I am not going to back down from my personal belief that the church is mistaken on this issue. Perfect. I, so, so a couple things. One is that, um, and again, I, I don't want the listener, because the listener, again, is going to think I'm asking this simply to 
have you be painted in the worst light possible to the listener. And that's not it. I want the listener to, to have a level of charity as they hear me ask this. Cause I'm, I'm not asking it to, again, not to play gotcha, but the argument that be patient, like God's telling you, look, be patient. They've got it wrong. Uh, we'll fix this in our That's due, own due time. That's not part of the message, by the way. Okay. I, okay. So I, I, please I, clarify. Well, well, be, well, because I kept praying, you know, I do not believe this is right. You know, and, and I was praying for confirmation. Tell me that this is, tell me this is right or wrong. And the answer was not it's right or it's wrong. The answer was be patient. There was no, there was no message to me of any kind of, endorsement or repudiation of the policy. So let me say, let me state it differently then. So you believe the policy is wrong. Um, God tells you to be patient, meaning that in his own due time, something will move or shift that will reframe how you think of things or reframe how they think of things. In the, in the meantime, though, there's a lot of damage being done. Um, there are innocent children who see themselves as broken and less than, and and who uh, some of which, many of which are having depression and self-loathing and uh, a lack of self-esteem and not seeing where they fit in God's plan of salvation. And some of them are even taking their lives. And I know the long view, which is on, you know, God will fix this on the other side for those kids. But man, as one who sees life as precious and to have to reconcile that 15 prophet seers and revelators are, and again, this is what you and me are thinking, not necessarily what God thinks, but that these 15 men are so stubborn in not wanting to compromise the theology of the church so as to hold out while kids take their lives seems absolutely atrocious to my conscience. Well, okay, I, I, and I can certainly see that. So the question then becomes, what is the best way to help these children who are struggling this way, and, and does it help them if I leave the church? And I don't think it does. I don't think it helps the church if the people who are frustrated with this with this doctrine, with this teaching, um, abandon the church and leave it to the people who aren't uncomfortable with this doctrine. I, I and I, I recognize that there is not a vehicle within the church to stand up and protest. That the church does not respond well to the, that kind of movement. But the reality is, you look at at the surveys of of uh, millennial Mormons and people come J- Jana Reese has a wonderful book coming out. I haven't read the book yet, but I've read a whole number of her articles that have referenced the data she's gathered called the next Mormons. And a majority of young members of the church, uh, favor gay marriage and favor gay rights. What happens when they become leaders of the church? Eventually things change. Uh, The reason why these 15 men are not receiving revelation that allows for more inclusion of LGBT people in in participation in the church is, I think, the same reason why prophets did not receive revelation about the priesthood ban, 
because I don't think it even occurs to them that there's a possibility that, um, that, that there could be something righteous in, in, uh, in homosexual sexual relations, that there is a possibility that there is some righteous purpose for that, that there is a way that that can be righteously, righteously exercised. And, and they, they, everything we know about revelation is the idea that it only comes when we ask questions and when we want it. And um, that was a basic principle taught to me in primary. I keep coming back to the word of wisdom being Emma being mad about washing tobacco stains out of wooden floors. I remember as a little kid thinking, well, that's really kind of convenient that they receive an answer right then. And I think I even said something to that effect. And I can remember a primary teacher saying, well, that's what you ask a question. You only get a, you only get an answer when you ask a question. So I don't think that, uh, members of the of the 12 and the first presidency have even thought to really genuinely ask the question, which is why we're not getting the kind of answer that I want. But I'm, I'm going a little far afield from, from your question is, is you're saying, okay, you're staying in a church that is doing things that is, that are hurting people. And I, I, I can't argue with that uh, except to say I'm staying in a church that is also doing things that, that are blessing the lives of far more people than they are hurting. And that's kind of a ratio that you say, well, okay, but how do you deal with this other element of it? And the way I deal with it is to say that I think that if people who are uncomfortable with this policy and who disagree with this policy, I think if they were to leave the church, uh, I think that long-term that does far more damage to the people who are hurt by this policy than it does for people for people to be patient and to be able to you know with using the principles of doctrine and covenant covenant section 121 you know only by persuasion by long suffering uh, brotherly kindness and all of these kinds of things uh, the Lord expects us to be patient not with our leaders. Uh, that's one of the commandments of the Doctrine and Covenants, is his word ye shall receive with all patience and faith. But the first word is, yeah, you need to receive his words uh, as authoritative, but you also need to be patient with him. You need to recognize that the Lord is extraordinarily patient with us, and we need to be patient with him. And and so I, I reconcile that by, by not denying, yes, that there are people who are suffering and there, there are people who are in pain as a result of what this church is doing. But abandoning the church in the process, I think, exacerbates the pain rather than ameliorates it. Um, okay. So let me ask you this. Because you said earlier this was a different sort of question, and let's ask it here. And we're bouncing back and forth because I think the race and the priesthood and the LGBT issue, if the exact same principles and mechanisms are in place. And so I think you can essentially substitute one for the other. And for the most part, um, you can get at the same concepts and ideas that are at the heart of why we're ha talking about these two issues. Um, well, I think there are differences. 
that, that ought to be acknowledged. One being that almost everybody, there were all kinds of statements that said blacks will eventually get the priesthood, just probably not to the millennium. But uh, you, you, you don't see similar statements about the LGBT issue, uh, which is a, a bit discouraging to me. But uh, I, I think in terms of the revelatory framework as to how it can be changed, yes, I think they're identical. But I think in the way that it's, it's been taught, uh, th- there are also obstacles uh, in terms of Latter-day Saint doctrine with regard to the idea that, that the highest degree of the celestial kingdom involves eternal increase. And so that, that stands, I think, as an obstacle we'd have to really rethink that theology or rethink how we understand eternal increase uh, to say that uh, two people of the same gender could be sealed in the temple in the same way that a heterosexual couple could be sealed in the temple. Uh, I think there are ways to interpret that, and I think there have been some interesting, there's some interesting movement among some Latter-day Saint thinkers, but I don't think we've seen any of that in church leadership. So I, I think that's the difference, is that church leadership prior to the 1978 revelation was open to the possibility of change, and right now I don't see them open to the possibility of change. Right. As seen by Elder Oaks in most of his recent general conference talks where he seems to be wanting to set in absolute stone that this is an unchangeable thing. Right, and I... I kind of see that to some degree as similar to a lot of the conference talks that you can go back and dig up prior to 1890, saying, absolutely not, we will never, ever give up plural marriage, This we, it, it will never happen. There are plenty of those. And so when people say that, that he's doing that, I say, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. And I'm not convinced that it's going to work. I'm not convinced that when my children and their generation take up the leadership positions in the church, uh, that they're going to go back to 2018 conference talks and say, well, we can't be inclusive because Dallin H. Oaks 30 years ago, 40 years ago said we can't. Okay. Um, the LGBT policy, and let me, let me step back. Let's, let's, I'm going to set aside from, I'm not, I'm not talking about the 2015 policy. I'm talking about the idea that for those who are attracted to the same gender, and it seems like the church is on the front end of acknowledging, because and there are some statements in the Mormon newsroom and in the previous uh, Mormons and Gays website, which is now Mormon and Gay, because I, I, that title of the first one kind of implied that there were two different groups when really they're the same people. Um, in the previous website, there was an acknowledgement that this isn't a choice. And in the current Mormon newsroom, there is acknowledgement that this isn't a choice and that it's complicated. Uh, For those who are born, and and I'm going to say born because I do think it is uh, biological, um, and we can argue the the degree with which it's genetic or which it's epigenetic or, but I think on some level, the, the moment that baby is born it is predisposed to an attraction somewhere along a spectrum, and that that attraction, uh, when it becomes a, a you know a teenager or a, a young adult or an adult, 
uh, isn't something that you can go from being on one side of the spectrum to the other simply by choosing. I think you agree with that as well. Okay, so acknowledging that and acknowledging that the church says the the solution is, look, we're going to agree that you don't have the ability to change your attractions. So the solution is that you remain celibate your entire life. Uh, and, and I want to say here too, and again, these matters are complex, so they take a lot of wording. Um, I want to say here too that sometimes members of the church say, well, that's no different than our single brothers and sisters. Well, it is. Yeah, right. And I'm glad you're agreeing. There, there is on, on the single brother and sister, they can go into their bedroom every night, kneel down before Heavenly Father and pray that God provides them, gives them an opportunity to have a romantic relationship by which they can be married and hopefully sealed in the temple, whereas the LGBT brother and sister has to pray that they never encounter that, that God keeps it from them. And I think those are two very different things where one has hope and the other one is hopeless in that particular need or want or desire. And so I want to ask you, and I'm assuming you're going to agree with this, but I'm assuming you see that position as untenable for most members of the church who are LGBT. Uh, absolutely. And I think that most members of the church don't recognize how much the church's position has changed. Uh, I can remember reading The Miracle of Forgiveness, which, you know, you know, bless Spencer W. Kimball's heart, but that's a terrible, terrible book on so many levels. And not just because it says that Cain is Bigfoot. Uh, but uh, it, it, it has it has it talks about homosexuality and and you know uses the word pervert and everything else and it's as, it's as derisive as it could possibly be. And then there's one passage in it, and I I, want, I should pull up the the actual words, but he essentially says that homosexuality is curable, and you know the Lord at one point said. Uh, knock and it shall be opened unto you. So how can you know that the door to a cure isn't open until you've knocked at the door until your hands are bloody? You know, I just imagine these bloody stumps of hands pounding on a door saying, change me. And, and Spencer W. Kimball's final summation is, it can be done. Well, no, it can't. It can't be done. And we now recognize that. And in the days of the miracle of forgiveness, uh, the, the fact that we called homosexuals perverts who were choosing to be gay at least had the benefit of being logically consistent with our policy. Because if homosexuals choose to be gay, then we are entirely justified in withholding all these blessings from them if they are voluntarily choosing a sinful life. Well, now we have a we have a an inconsistent position that, regardless of how you feel about it, morally is logically untenable, because now we say you don't choose to be gay. Uh, you, this is not a choice. You don't choose to be gay, and nothing you will do will change uh, to whom you are attracted. However, there is absolutely no righteous outlet for those feelings. And you need to shut that off, and you need to deny that entire part of your soul uh, 
either now or and probably through eternity. I mean, we, we have statements that people say, well, yeah, uh, homosexuals are homosexual now, but when they die and they're resurrected, they'll be heterosexual. And I look at that and say, you know, that flies in the face of all kinds of scriptures that talk about the same spirit with us now will be the spirit that accompanies us in the, the eternities. And I, I try to imagine, I, I think, you know, how you're talking about sexuality is not just is not just about a, a physical attraction. I mean, it's one of the fundamental definers of who we are. And to say that you know you're going to be the same person only straight in the next life becomes this sort of you're going to be this entirely different person from who you are now. And that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't, that flies in the face, I think, of our understanding of how, um, you know, how that same spirit that's with us now will be with us in the next life. So, so not only, I think, is, is, are there moral issues with that, I think it's logically untenable. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it, it, it can't endure. It has to fall down one way or the other. We either have to go back to the miracle of forgiveness position and start trying to pretend that homosexuality is a choice, even though that flies in the face of every piece of data that we, we, we have on the subject and the church has finally admitted that that's not true. So if that's not true and if this is not a choice and if, you know, people, if the Lord has made you gay, then the Lord must have some kind of righteous pur purpose for that. And we haven't gotten there yet, but I, I, I don't think, I don't think we have any choice as a people, but to get there eventually, because there's logically, it just can't stand the way it is. As you're agreeing that that position is untenable, it's not emotionally healthy uh, for these LGBT folks. Um, and I want to get your thoughts. I mean, it feels to me by, by agreeing with those two things and recognizing and my, and this is only me saying it anecdotally, I don't know the data, but it feels to me having had conversations with a ton of people and having watched this both as an insider and now as an outsider, it feels like for most LGBT members of the church, they eventually end up outside the church because that position is untenable. Um, my, my question to you, and I'm, I'm not debating that there isn't good in Mormonism. I think there is. Um, I, I have said on numerous occasions, Jim, that 17-year-old me was blessed deeply by Mormonism. In fact, Mormonism worked so good from probably 17 to about the age of 30 that, that I, I, was, I was made a better person by having Mormonism in my life. So I'm not debating that there isn't goodness there. What I want to point to is that this unhealthiness for an LGBT member is so toxic uh, I, that I think that those folks are better off and healthier and have a better chance at a healthy life outside the church than in it. And I'm curious if, you're, if you think the same thing. Uh, you know, I have, uh, I have members of my family who are gay who are still active members of the church. I also have members of my family who are gay who have left the church. Um, I, you know, I, I have wondered what I would do 
if one of my children were to come to me and say I were they were gay and what should they do and what kind of counsel I would give them. Uh, and what I the conclusion I have come to is that if if somebody if, if somebody is gay, if somebody is lesbian or is transgender and comes to me and says, I can't stay in the church because it's too toxic for me. Uh, my reaction would be, I will love you as much uh, when you are outside of the church as, as in the church. And hopefully the church someday will be a place where you will not feel that way. And hopefully you will come back when that is the case. Uh, but so I, I don't know if that's, if that's a cop out, if that's, I mean, I would fully respect the decision of somebody who felt like they couldn't stay in the church and had to leave because of, of this particular teaching, because it's too toxic and too hurtful. I would respect that decision and I would continue to love them. And indeed I have with those members of my extended family that have made that decision. So, um, I, I don't know any other way to answer that. Uh, do you think, do you think it's emotionally healthier for most LGBT members to be outside the church? Like that seems, and I get it. Here's my, here's my point. I know there's a hesitation and I understand the hesitation because it, it again, going back to the idea that when the rubber meets the road, we, we can't really say exactly sometimes how we feel. Because this church, I mean, if Dr. No, Lowry not, Nelson... It's not an issue that I'm worried that the church is going to come after me if I, if I answer it one way or the other. Um, it, it's, it's... And I grant there are exceptions to the rule, by the way. I know that there are individuals who feel, and I'm going to let them make their own judgment for their own um, spiritual life. I think it's wrong for us to step in and say... I don't like when other people tell my story, Jim. And so I want to stay clear of telling other people's stories. So if somebody says, look, I'm happier in the church uh, being celibate than going out of the church and living my LGBT life. Uh, on the other hand, I want, I want to acknowledge that generally with everybody in the church and what they're doing and what their lives look like inside and outside and what I hear people say both inside, the number of 20-year-olds that we can find trying to make it and the lack of 50-year-olds trying to make it versus uh, people who are outside the church who are leading LGBT lives because that's who, where their attraction is and they seem healthier and happier. It feels like generally speaking, being outside the church is a better choice for our LGBT members with the recognition that there are exceptions to the rule. Well, I, I, I'm coming back to my own anecdotal experience with my, and I, I, and I don't want to drag my relative into this, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be vague, but I have a relative who is older than I am, uh, who is not celibate, as far as I know, he, he has a partner. Uh, but is still an active member of the church and has determined that being in the church is better than being out of the church, even with all of that frustrations. And he doesn't have a temple recommend, you know, and all these kinds of things, but he, he remains an active member of the church. Uh, so the reason I don't want to say, oh, yes, absolutely, it's, I would agree that it's better for, for a gay person or a transgender person to be out of the church than in the church. 
The reason I don't want to say that is because I still have a testimony of the value and the beauty of this church. And I see the benefit of it in so many other aspects of, of life. I, I think you probably have to make the kind of equation my relative has made in saying, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to participate fully. I'm not going to be able to go to the temple. I'm not going to be able to do these other kinds of things, but I still think there is value and benefit here. Uh, so I recognize that I don't like where the church is on this issue, but I don't want to say that the church is a terrible thing because I don't think the church is a terrible thing. I think the church is a wonderful thing. And I think even for LGBT people, there are all kinds of blessings and benefits that can be found in church membership. Uh, although, if they make the decision and termination that the toxicity is just too high and they, they, can't, they can't handle both and they can't reconcile both, I don't judge them for making that determination. But I don't want, I, I, I can't quite get there from here in saying it would be better for all LGBT members to simply leave the church. I can't quite get there. I'm not there yet. Maybe I will get there at some point. But at the moment, I, I look at it and say, uh, the church has been such a tremendous blessing in my own life and in the lives of so many people that that to say that there's absolutely no place for anybody who is LGBT to participate. I, and, and maybe I'm deluding myself, but I just don't believe that yet. Yeah. And, and in some, and again, I want to honor your, your relative, um, God, God bless him for being able to one, do that. And two, uh, for being in a ward and a stake that is allowing him to participate at the level he wants to with, with the recognition that leader roulette. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Frank, that's, that's an issue. I mean, he, he said he'll never, he'll never move from where he is because he's afraid that he wouldn't be allowed to do that if he were to go somewhere else. Right. The church institutional, like that wards an exception because it's operating in a way that seems to distance itself from the way the institutional church would like those wards to handle this situation. In other words, the handbook seems to make homosexuality a degree of sin that requires a disciplinary court. Right. It doesn't require the outcome. And I think that they've leaned heavily. I'm not even sure if he's ever faced a disciplinary court. I've never, I'm, I was trying not even to use a gender pronoun, but, but uh, I don't, I don't think he's ever faced a disciplinary court. And so his, his ward is probably, just the exception the other way. Yeah. It's the exception exception. of the rule. And so he's lucky. Um, most wards wouldn't. And so again, most LGBT members feel like the only option is to be celibate or to be excommunicated. Right. Okay. Um, and, and that position you've agreed is untenable. And I'm simply saying for those who live in wards and stakes that seem to adhere more closely to what the leadership wants, I'm not, I'm not asking you to say, are all members better outside? I'm asking you if most members are likely experiencing a healthier life outside the church if they're LGBT. And I, I think those two questions are very different because I'm not asking you to put everybody in a box, 
but I'm asking if you can validate that for most LGBT folks uh, outside the church is going to be, it, it, they're experiencing a healthier space. I, I, I guess I'm quibbling over the word most uh, because I don't want to quantify it. And I'm hopeful that the Lord is giving answers to LGBT people along the same lines as the answers he's giving to me, telling them that there is hope, that if you stay, that there will be changes. And so, so if I were to say most, I'd be belying the idea that I think it's going to change, and I think it is going to change. Uh, so what I will concede is that uh, there are many LGBT members that are having a healthier uh, spiritual life outside the church than within it. And in emotion, in a better emotional well-being, and, and better emotional well-being, yes. Okay, uh, and I'll, I'm happy to let's go that far, and I won't push anymore. So, um, which raises the next question: So, if all 15 men, so you agree, I agree, the science, the data points to this being just a human thing, like just like a small portion of us are left-handed, there is a there's a portion of us who don't fall into the uh the the heterosexual side of the spectrum right and uh knowing that the data points us to it's not a choice that uh on some level uh, this is just a human thing and not even human like in the animal world we see it as well it's not even to say like it's some carnal thing, like even penguins are there. That's who that penguin is. And so he, he's, he finds another male penguin and, and that's where he finds his, uh, his, his attraction. So knowing that it's evolutionary, knowing the data points us there, knowing that it does deeply contradict with much of our theology, for instance, the, and I'll bring the November, 2015 policy back in to tell for elder Christofferson to stand up there and say, uh, the Holy, nothing is lost. They can come back when they're 18. It flies in the face of what we say as members in the church. We say things like, thank goodness my teenagers have the Holy Ghost because there's so much pressure in schools to make bad decisions and to uh, be, be persuaded by peer pressure. And, so, and then on the other hand, to say these children of gay people they don't need the Holy Ghost right now. They, they, they can do without it. And if they come back and they're, you know, as an adult, then nothing is lost. It sounds like you would agree that that does, that's not, that doesn't work. That's not coherent. It doesn't work at all. I, I had a number of conversations with people who would start, who would make those arguments. And I said, okay, and this was contemporaneous with the, with the policy announcement. I'd say, could you imagine just a month ago trying to argue to anybody that the gift of the Holy Ghost is no big deal, that it doesn't matter, that you that going through adolescence without the gift of the Holy Ghost really doesn't make any difference. And that would always get people to sort of hem and haw and say, well, eventually it'll all work out. But the, the, that, that kind of justification doesn't work uh, because either the gift of the Holy Ghost and the priesthood matter or they don't. And if they don't matter, then we shouldn't baptize anybody until they're 18. Until they're, you know, legal adults and can make that decision for themselves. And, and I also balk at the, at, the, at the justification that says, well, we don't want somebody taught something in their homes that is contrary to what's being taught at church. And, and I think 
That's the experience of just about every convert who was baptized before the age of 18. You know, I, I, I remember I, I, uh, I, I baptized a girl I was dating when she was 16, and her, her family gave consent initially, and then later on tried to kick her out of the house. I think that lasted for about a week or so. But uh, And they weren't a terrible family, but they were a Catholic family. And Catholicism is not Mormonism. They were teaching things that were contrary. And, the, and it's stunning to me that if, if a convert is baptized in a home where the parents are alcoholics or the parents are you know, child abusers, they're definitely being taught things that are contrary to what the church teaches. And the gift of the Holy Ghost and membership in the church becomes the anchor that allows them to survive in those kinds of hostile environments. So, so all of the arguments justifying the November policy, including the ones that Elder Christofferson made, really fall flat with me. I see no validity in any of them. So knowing all the data points to this being just a biological thing, seeing the fact that it contradicts LDS theology at numerous places. I did a post when this first, let me say this, when, when the November 2015 policy came out, one day before that, my mindset was the church is on the right path, it's figuring things out, and we're moving in the right direction. When that policy came out, it felt like a punch to the gut and it was it was this moment where i had to, and it was kind of like a come to jesus moment it was this moment where i had to really come to terms that these men could essentially work 180 degrees against where i thought jesus stood and where i thought the church that i had placed faith in would stand and it 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 damaged my faith on a whole lot of levels and so with that said i want to say that on November 5th of 2015, so this would have been, I think, the day that the policy came out, um, I wrote uh, an article called Duty Bound to Reject It, and here's why. I, I put the reasons why this thing doesn't mesh with LDS theology. One, this policy change diminish, diminishes agency, right? We took the agency away from these kids and the parents of these kids, which is where we've taught all along that the primary responsibility of directing our children in the gospel is the parent's responsibility. Um, two, this policy diminishes the importance of the Holy Ghost, which we just talked about. Three, this policy violates scripture in D&C 6827, which says uh, that calls for all 18-year-old children within the stakes of Zion to be baptized and confirmed. Uh, next one, this policy diminishes the value of ordinances such as baptism. Like to think that these kids will come back after we've shoved them out for their entire uh, childhood to the age of 18 is silly. Like most of these kids are just going to find other ways to live out their life and they never come back. And so we have essentially told them that the ordinances are not so necessary right now. You can simply go live your life and we'll catch up with you when you're gone, uh, when you've deceased. Uh, this policy seems to run contradictory to the teachings of Jesus. Suffer the little children to come unto me. This policy leaves so many harmful possibilities. Uh, say that there's a, a child who's being taken to church uh, by his grandparents 
Uh, all of a sudden, this kid can't receive the ordinances, so he's sitting next to his peers, and they're moving along in the gospel, and he can't because his parents are gay. Uh, it, it feels like you're causing a lot of emotional harm to that kid who still ends up being sh- taken to church by some other family member, or by his gay parents for that matter. Um, this policy seems to contradict Article of Faith number two. We believe that uh, men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. It seems deceptive to claim that the letter sent out a week later was a clarification of the original intent. That's another thing I saw as a big issue, was putting something in the handbook and then saying, oh, we didn't mean what we wrote in this handbook, which is so important to us. We actually mean it much differently. And to do it in a letter form, to risk that letter essentially being lost to the next leader who's called, I think makes room for every warden stake to operate unclearly and not knowing exactly what they're supposed to be doing because all they have at that point is the handbook if that paper gets lost. Um, There was already a policy that would have covered in all likelihood most of these situations. Uh, There already is a policy that you need both parents' permission for baptism. Uh, And as you pointed out, there's other sins out there that we're not enacting these things at all. So with all that said, Help me understand, because this is going to get into the next topic, and maybe we'll start on it a little bit today. It gets into the next topic of, if these 15 men can be that wrong, where they sit in a room, 15 of them, smart men, educated men, and they're so determined to hold the ground they're holding, in spite of the fact that what this does so clearly runs against its own theology, so clearly is untenable once you understand it's biological and not a choice, and, and, and all of us critics who are being told to be quiet are seeming to come to the right answer long before these guys are. It runs into the problem of why would I place trust in these 15 men if they seem so incapable of discerning truth in spite of everything flying in the face of, of this issue? Like, man, it, it just, this is one of the things I really struggle with. And maybe I'm not framing it right. Um, it, this is one of the reasons I had to step away was because I got to a place where once I took back my own authority, once I started to think for myself, once I no longer was blindly obedient, I realized that on 99% of the issues in my life, uh, I deeply, and again, we can argue like, man, maybe I was deceived. I deeply feel like I'm doing better at knowing right and wrong than these 15 men who are supposed to be a guide to me. These 15 men are not supposed to be substitutes for your own um, capacity to determine right and wrong. And they are not. So, I I mean, so I look at this and I say, uh, you know, I, I look at not just these 15 men, but I look at the vast membership of the church who I think were raised at a time and a place where culturally uh, and uh, you know j- j- environmentally were were taught that this is how you're supposed to view homosexuality. Uh, I don't see these 15 men as being morally superior to the people that I have been surrounded with all of my life within the church. Uh, so I mean, so I look at that and say. I, I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in terms of how we deal with our leadership in the church is in assuming that somehow these men are 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 different from us. 
I don't think they are. I, I think that if you were to gather 15 men in my own ward, I don't know what percentage of them would have those same kinds of feelings about homosexuality, but I would say it would probably be fairly consistent with where the brethren are. I So, I, yeah, yeah, we can get into that. I, I, I you know, I, I have a perspective that comes from being raised with this sort of sense of expectation uh, given my family heritage, and I, and I hate putting it in those terms because it sounds like I'm, I've, you know, I, my, my two great-grandfathers, Heber J. Grant and David O. McKay, always left me feeling totally inadequate as a human being because I knew I was just another schlub like everybody else. And I thought, well, how can I be just another schlub when I had these two sort of demigods as my ancestors. And I served my mission in Scotland, which is where the McKays came from. And I actually served six months up in Thurso, Scotland, which is near the northernmost point of the British mainland, where the McKays actually joined the church. And I visited the what's left of the home where David O. McKay's grandfather accepted the gospel. It's this, it's this stone croft in the middle of a field that the roof has collapsed. I don't know how much, that was 30 years ago, so I don't know how much of it is still left. But um, at the time, my grandfather was writing a book, and the book was called My Father David O. McKay. And if I can uh, persuade you not to read a useful book on David O. McKay, I would tell you to avoid that book because it's essentially a hagiography that tells you what David O. McKay's favorite pie was and you know stuff that doesn't matter and it doesn't you know reading david o mckay and the rise of modern mormonism versus reading this book it's night and day this book is just to tell you what a great great human being david o mckay was and he was a prophet and he was on a pedestal and you should look up to him uh and all of that and and but at the time when i was serving in thurso my parents sent me a copy of David O. McKay's missionary journal, uh, unedited. And, and uh, it was a huge revelation to me. Because David O. McKay, bless his heart, was a terrible missionary. He, he wasted a lot of time. He went and toured whiskey factories in Glasgow while he was in Scotland. He would complain about the locals, and he talked about this haggard woman that threw a gospel tract back at him when he tried to give it to her, and he'd say, I'd as leaf die as distribute tracts. You know, they hated tracting that much. Uh, uh, you know, he missed his girlfriend. He didn't baptize anybody, although he was sort of called in the mission leadership fairly early into his mission, so he didn't really spend a lot of time proselyting. But the time he spent proselyting, he, he had a miserable time. And and I read that journal, and and I read that in the context of my entire life, feeling inadequate and small, because I was David O. McKay's great-grandson, and I was still nobody, and I wasn't the righteous person who could be a prophet. And what I took from that journal was, well, gosh, if he can start there and get to where he got, then maybe there's hope for me after all. And I think we do this huge dis disservice to the youth of the church 
by putting these men on a pedestal and saying, look how much better they are than you. Because what we should be saying is, you can be them too. You, they are just like you. They are not, they are no different from you. They struggle with the same kinds of things and the same kinds of biases and the same kinds of setbacks that you struggle with. I think that is such a, a much more compelling story. And if I can tell one more personal story, and I, 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 I'll, I'll use the actual um, names here because everybody involved in this is dead. But my uncle uh, used to write priesthood manuals for the church. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Utah. And uh, I think was actually the, even the institute director at the same time. And was one of the, the head writers of priesthood manuals. And he would give his priesthood manual drafts to Richard L. Evans, who was in the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. And Richard L. Evans would look at him and say, oh, these are great. These are great. Thanks. And then Richard L. Evans would take him to Harold B. Lee. And Harold B. Lee would say, these are terrible. Uh, you need to change this, 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 and this. And he'd take them back to my uncle. And my uncle kept getting frustrated with the fact that the members of the Quorum of the Twelve couldn't agree on whether or not what he was writing was any good. And he, he, my father kept saying, well, he, he realized that he was smarter than the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. And I think that's probably absolutely true. My uncle was one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. Uh, and he ended up eventually leaving the church because he saw disagreements in the Quorum of the Twelve. And he recognized that these men weren't any smarter than he was. And, and my father, at one point, was sitting uh, in the lobby of the Hotel Utah with Harold B. Lee. I don't know what the occasion was. This was before my father was a senator or was, was anybody of note, really. But he was sitting in the lobby, and Harold B. Lee asked him, whatever happened with your brother? And, and Dad said, well, he's left the church. And he, he described this whole thing, and he said, Harold B. Lee got visibly upset. And he said, oh, I know people outside of Utah put us on a pedestal like that, but doesn't he realize we're just men? And we're men who are doing the best we can. And, and that story has always stuck with me. My dad told me that story in that that's how he saw the brethren. These are men who are doing the best they can. They are men who are no different from you and I. Uh, and I think we make a huge mistake by putting them on this huge pedestal and assuming they are not capable of these kinds of biases. And the kinds of biases that we see with regard to homosexuality, just as the biases against uh, black people in the 19th century were pervasive among the entire population, uh, this is the way that not just Mormons, but the way that most Catholics and evangelicals, and this is the way Christendom as a whole, still use homosexuality. We're seeing movement in other denominations that we're not seeing uh, in our church. But the Catholic Church is still just as rigid on these issues as the Mormon Church is. And, and so I think that the idea that these 15 men can hold a position that is consistent with the way that virtually all of Christianity still views homosexuality even though they're in error, it, it, it's not surprising to me and it's not troubling to me in the sense that I don't expect these men to be better than me. And I'm not saying I'm better than them, 
that I'm saying we are all part of the same community. We all come from the same culture and we're all subjected, I think, to the same biases. And I don't think that they're going to move until they can conceive of, uh, until they can even recognize their biases. I, I, I think they're, they're, uh, they're, you know, they're fish in water saying, what water? This is just the water that they've swum in their entire lives. And so I, I think it's going to take time, and I think it's going to take a rising generation that is growing up with, with a different mindset and a different culture to be able to ask the, the right questions to get the right answers. Yeah, and I don't, man. This is right, so this I was, is, that was long and, and no, 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 no. That's that's good. I this is such a um, for me. It's it's such a the crux of the entire problem, and and so I'm going to struggle to word this right, but I'm trying to convey to you why why this piece, this hill, this hill that we're talking about is so crucial to the entire conversation, which is my, my, as I sat from a, from a 17 year old convert. And as I originally took the church's stance on every issue, like my father-in-law sat down and said, here's what the church taught on this, 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 this. And I just accepted it full, full all across the board. And as I've grown and matured and on a path of development, taken back my own authority and began to think for myself and feeling completely comfortable disagreeing with other, with the authorities of my tribe. What I recognized happened was that on every issue, I was ahead of the church. And, and that can sound arrogant. That can sound deeply arrogant. But when I looked at things like, even little things like cremation and birth control, um, when I look at women working outside the home, when I looked at uh, the sexist uh, things going on in the temple, when I looked at uh, the way we framed race in the priesthood, when I looked at the LGBT policy, it seems as if every step of the way, I was coming to the truth before these 15 men. And, and the system is set up so that these 15 men are prophets, seers, and revelators. Now, those words used to mean things. Prophets prophesied, seers could see into the future, uh, see into the past. Uh, revelators gave revelation, new things, new insights. And what seems to happen in Mormonism is that these men are always behind the times because of their cultural upbringing, and it takes a changing world, which they say is wicked and fallen, but which seems to always be ahead on every single social issue. And then us critical members of the church, us either progressive Mormons or us ex-Mormons are shouting out that, hey, this isn't right. We're doing damage and it needs to change only to have the church 40 to 50 years later make a change. Now that's one. The other side of the coin is that this system, these top 15 men from generation to generation generally, and I know there have been some exceptions, Hubie Brown, uh, Elder Uchtdorf to some extent in the present moment, these 15 men generally from generation to generation want to be seen as magical prophet seers and revelators. They want to acknowledge there's this little level of fallibility, but they never really want to get down into the mud and say like, to be honest, 
we're almost always behind the times. It takes a long time for all 15 of us to agree on something. It almost always takes the world changing to point at our unhealthiness. It almost always takes members um, at the bottom raising a voice up to us, even though we excommunicate them for saying so, to get us to start to see that we're doing something wrong. And then 40 to 50 years late, we finally come around to where the rest of humanity has come. And I'm simply saying that feels deeply ineffective, number one. And it feels like if I'm constantly having to look in the rearview mirror to see where these prophet seers and revelators are, only to, to feel deeply within my soul that I'm ahead of the game where I'm at, then it becomes deeply problematic to hang around and continue to let this system tell you that it works a certain way when the reality is it works something completely different. And on your hand, when you're saying like, I, like we all need to think for ourselves, great. But if we actually try that, like if I, I, like I can think it, we all have a human right. Here's another thing. And I, and I know I'm going off in different places, but these all tie together. The church says, look, you're welcome to believe whatever you want. You just can't say it. And to some extent, that's what they say, um, because I can name numerous people who have been punished for telling true history, have been punished for raising a hand and saying, I'm not okay with what we're doing here. Uh, Dr. Lowry Nelson himself was punished. Not, not just that. Dr. Lowry Nelson himself was threatened with punishment if he didn't get on board, even though it turns out he was the one who was right. So this system... What was the issue with Dr. Nelson? So Dr. Lowry Nelson had a correspondence with the first presidency. Oh, right. Well, and, yeah. and he was saying essentially right. on the race and the priesthood, like, this isn't, this isn't tenable. Right. Uh, and these guys said, if you keep saying that, then you're working against the church. I, I just forgotten the name. So I, I... Right. No, no, no sweat. So this system punishes you for raising a voice to what it's doing wrong. It pretends that these guys talk to Jesus directly uh, Elder Quentin Cook and Elder Oaks both recently said, look, we're not always talking to Jesus, but for instance, on these temple changes that just happened, those President Nelson got through a face-to-face conversation. And I'm happy to give you those quotes, so the next time we talk... I'd love to see those quotes. You can speak on that. But their words they, imply... They claim that they claim that President Nelson spoke face-to-face with yeah, Jesus about... Yeah. yeah, they're implying that this revelation was way, way more direct than the way these guys normally interact. And I just think that's dangerous because... I need to see the quote because... Yeah, and I will. I'll show it to you so that you and I can have an intelligent conversation about it since you're not aware of it. That's not fair. But I'm simply saying this system seems broken. This system seems like there's no real way for feedback. There's no way to critical to give critical thought to the things these guys do. And, and and yet these guys seem to be on every social issue 40 to 50 years behind the times. And so a guy like me sits and goes like, why would I kick against the pricks, right? Like, why would I stay in this thing to constantly be told by my ward, by my stake, and by the church generally that I'm the one who's wrong, when in reality, on every single issue that I've expressed uh, uh, an opinion on, it seems like either the church has come around, or you and I are in agreement that they're going to. Um, Man, it's just, this is the crux. Like, if these guys are prophet seers and revelators, I'm not seeing the evidence of it. I don't see anything that indicates to me that these guys are acting above and beyond what 15 professional businessmen who want to maintain a theology and who grew up in a social context of 40 to 50 years ago would act. And so I'm not seeing any reason for anybody to hang around and to see these guys as anything 
above and beyond uh, men who want to be seen a certain way, but that the evidence points at them as just being 15 old dudes in a room. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I know that comes off as disrespectful. But 15 uh, older men in a room whose social context is from the 1950s and the 1960s, the 1970s and the 1980s with the AIDS scare. And, and these men seem like even when all roads point to them being wrong, this system is set up in a way that they get to hold on to that wrong for 40 to 50 years in spite of the evidence. Well, okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, because I would agree with you to some extent, but I, I try to sort of flip the context of it. Because when you say... The system is broken. I would have to come back and say, well, what is the purpose of the system? If the purpose of the system is to be on the cutting edge of social change, then, yeah, I think this is a, a really inefficient system. I don't think that's what the purpose of the system is. The purpose of the system is administering the ordinances and the teachings of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is orderly, in a, in a way that allows the greatest amount of access to people living and dead to what they need in order to be saved. And a lot of the social issues you're talking about, uh, for the most part, are largely irrelevant to that. I mean, I, I, mean, I know that the church's position on a number of these things is a, is a bone of contention in a lot of different ways, but... I'd say 90% of the time I go to church, none of these issues even come up. I mean, we're talking about salvation. We're talking about loving our neighbor. We're talking about what can we do to help sister so-and-so. Uh, she's, she's you know, just gotten surgery, and can we bring her dinner, and who's going to shovel her walk? I mean, in, in very practical, pragmatic, down-to-earth ways. Uh, and, and I think that really is the lived experience of most members of the church uh, far more than any kind of controversial social issues. Uh, even for LGBT members, the church in practical terms and the way it's lived and the way it's practiced uh, is far more sort of hands-on and direct experience than, than the social uh, attitudes of its leaders. You know, we experience this in a very uh, in a very profound firsthand way. So, um, uh, just just about precisely, it was on Valentine's Day of 2011. My family and I, I went skiing, and on the last run of the day, my daughter took a wrong turn, went down a double black diamond, and ended up falling head over heels 300 yards down the side of the mountain in Sol at Solitude Resort and suffered a burst fracture in her spine that left her partially paralyzed from the waist down. And she's a, she's a partial paraplegic to this day. And after that happened, our ward uh, came to our house. They cleaned our house. Uh, a contractor in our ward remodeled our house at no cost in order to make it handicap friendly. We got meals delivered to our door for months. Uh, you know, the, the entire ward just sort of descended on us and buoyed us up as we were dealing with this huge setback in our lives. And I, I, there's no other organization like that that, that, that does that. 
I know there are other churches that do that. I'm, I'm not trying to say that makes our church truer than any other church. But what I think it does is it demonstrates what the experience of living in this church really is. And it's more than, than, than just, well, I disagree on these social issues. I mean, when you say the church, I, the church accommodates people with all kinds of different points of view, uh, I think, in far greater latitude than, than your assessment would allow for. I, I, really, I really believe that's true. I mean, I, I can remember growing up and having all kinds of arguments with, with liberal Democrats and, and whatever else uh, who were active faithful members of the church whose membership was never in question, uh, who had very different positions on social issues. And I, I, I think the church starts to take action against people when, when they start to sort of mobilize against the church, when they start to take public stands and try to persuade people to oppose the church. I, I am never. I don't know if if my conversations with you are going to get me into trouble. I don't think they will, because even as I say, oh yeah, I don't disagree with the church. I'm not trying to mobilize an army to go up against the church and say you need to change this policy or else. I'm saying I disagree, and and I've said I've been saying since the 2015 policy, and you can still go back and read my blog. Uh, I've been saying, this is why I disagree. I sustain my leaders. I recognize their authority. And I am not going to, I'm not going to, you know, try to stage a coup. I, I recognize that you have the authority to do this, but I do not agree with my leaders on this issue and on these issues. Uh, but I, I think the vast majority of what these 15 men do and what they teach is uplifting, it is of value, uh, it is of God, and and the way people experience the church firsthand in terms of the kind of practical concern that we have for our neighbors that we wouldn't know if it weren't for the church, that we wouldn't have any interaction with if it weren't for the church. I think there is such tremendous value in that that if we start to think that all the church is is just a bunch of men who are backwards on social issues, we are missing the vast majority of the lived experience of members of the church that is of extraordinarily value and does a tremendous amount of good in the world, both in and out of the church. Yeah, I see, I see Mormonism as doing ethnocentric tribalism really well. In other words, if you, and, and, I, and I heard what you just said in terms of in and out of the church. Um, so I, I do, I agree that the church does do good outside the church as well. Although I would probably debate you on the scope of that and the amount of energy and resources spending that compared to what they have available. That said, I think they do ethnocentric tribalism really well. What, if you, you say ethnocentric, you, are you saying racial? The, the no, I'm saying that if you look and talk and walk like a Mormon, this community will love you and serve you to, to, uh, to the nth degree. Well, um, look and the, talk. I mean, I, mean, I, I want to push back fairly hard on that because I think in the Hispanic community, for instance, uh, you see a tremendous amount of, of 
uh, brotherhood and acceptance of people that don't look like me. Uh, I mean, I mean, I, I don't think I, ethnocentrism and look like a Mormon implies, I think, a racial element that I, I think is belied by the lived experience of members of this church. I mean, I, I think with the exception of, of what we've done with, with blacks in the priesthood, uh, I, I, I think the, the church's greatest growth now is taking place in areas where people do not look and talk like the white guys in Utah. No, that's not what I mean. So if in various wards and stakes across the globe of the church, the church, and again, I understand that in places that are less connected to the culture of Utah and the way in which these leaders present ideas. In other words, the further you get away uh, from the Wasatch Front, the the more ability for local leadership to kind of maybe do their own brand of things without being as heavily influenced by the culture of what's here in Utah. But that Mormonism does a really good job. And, and again, I can only speak to, I lived in Ohio and I've lived here in Utah. And there certainly are differences. There are things about the Utah church culture that in some ways disgust me. But recognizing that even in Ohio, in this uh, the mission field of the church, that when somebody came to church and when they looked like they fit what we culturally say is like, this is what a good Mormon is, then we served those people and they served us and we were right there in any emergency they had. That anybody who was outside the church or even those inside who didn't quite fit the mold, we we begin really easy in Mormonism to create boundaries and to create us and them. And we're and it's a human thing. I don't I don't mean that it's just a Mormon thing. It's a human thing. But in high demand fundamentalist religions, which I deeply believe Mormonism is one of those, we we go to another degree of it. And we create us and we create them and us are the winning team or the good guys and them isn't. And uh, we go out of our way to serve us, and unless we have a unless and, and and then with them our motives are either to bring them into the church, or to distance ourselves from them if we see them as some way having been deceived by Satan and a tool of the adversary. And we have this language. I mean, we teach lessons on Thomas Marsh and Simon's Rider, and then the overall lesson of don't be one of those guys. And, and so. When I lived in Ohio, I could get away with it a little bit more because I had converted to that ward and I served as a bishop in that ward. But I was still having the people generally begin to start distancing themselves from me. When I came here to Southern Utah, I, even as an active member of the church with a current temple recommend, members of my ward saw me as an apostate even in my activity. Like when I would raise a question or a hand to them talking about the LGBT issue and say like, guys, I, we, we got to quit talking about it in this certain way. Like we're just not accurate to the science and the data. Like we need to be more informed and not be so binary in our thinking. 
people would silence me right in the middle of class and tell me to be quiet. And it's a human thing, but it shows up so much stronger in something like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Scientology. And again, I know you and I would both agree that that's even another extreme. Um, Seventh-day Adventist, uh, when there are unhealthy systems that say we're the good guys and everyone else is the bad guys, and to some degree we do that in Mormonism, we create boundary lines and we end up doing damage to those who don't fit. Uh, we end up pushing them away. We end up distancing ourselves from them to a degree that is more than what we see in healthier systems. Um, so finishing off, kind of winding up, and we'll get into this heavier in the next episode. The next episode, my hope is to cover, and, and I see the next episode as the final episode of Substance, and then maybe one more episode if you and I both feel it necessary to hash out kind of looking back at all of our conversation. Okay. Um, when I converted to this church, I was taught that this was something different than the world. Not only that we had saving ordinances, but that we had prophets, seers, and revelators. We had men who talk to God himself in a way that others don't talk to God. Otherwise, there's no reason to have a label. In other words, if someone is an airplane pilot, they come with some type of difference between them and somebody who's not an airline pilot. Because we've given the labels, and they want the labels, and they ask us to sustain them with the labels of prophets, seers, and revelators, I was led to believe, and I think it's fair to say that they intentionally wanted me to believe it, that these men had extra added access and ability to give us the mind and will of God beyond and above what my capacity was. And what I'm telling you is that's not my lived experience. My lived experience is that these 15 men needing to be unified, these 15 men being older and holding to a culture that's behind us, these 15 men imposing that the world is fallen, hence there's an even stronger resistance to saying like, oh, we're wrong and the world's right. And these 15 men not allowing real critical feedback. In other words, there's, there's no real healthy way to send recommendations up the line. Those who try to do that seem to be punished. Uh, and they tend to entrench even more when that happens. And sometimes that adds another decade or two to the change. I, I see 15 men who, again, I see no evidence of them being the thing they claim to be. And I would welcome from you saying, like, let me lay out the evidence. Here, here is these men being prophets, seers, and revelators in a way that is more than just them having to come to terms with being wrong, but them having some access to being ahead of the game, if that makes sense. Well, it makes sense, but what you've described is you're saying, give me evidence uh, that backs up my assumptions of what a prophet, seer, and revelator is or is supposed to be. And I think the problem is in the assumptions, because I do not assume that these 15 men uh, have any more access to heaven than I do. 
Uh, what I, is a seer then? Because the Book of Mormon tells us what a seer is. Right. Are these men not seers in the way the Book of Mormon tells us a seer is? Somebody who sees the past and the future. Well, well, the, the Book of Mormon actually describes seers essentially as the kinds of people who can translate re- records of ancient date. Uh, where, where he describes what a seer is, he's, de- he's describing, I think it's in the book of Mosiah, or they, when they receive the Jaredite plates, and he's describing that it's a seer who can translate the Jaredite plates. Uh, so what, what it means is that these are the men who have the authority to do that. That, you know, if, if there's a guy who claims to have, have, um, who have translated the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon and to also retranslate the lost 116 pages, and he claims to be Hiram Smith reincarnated, and there's a member of the Smith family in St. George, Ida Smith, fell in with this guy, and we know that family fairly well, and Ida Smith contacted my father and asked her to read this stuff, and Dad did and told her why it was nonsense. But Ida Smith also called Jeff Holland and taped the conversation. And even though Jeff Holland said, you're not taping this, are you? And she said, no, that's all on the tape. Uh, But uh, Jeff Holland made the point, he said, if we're going to get the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, it's not going to come to some guy from Joe's Bar and Grill. It's going to come through the leadership of the church. And this guy who supposedly translated it then wrote a, biography of himself calling himself the man from Joe's Bar and Grill. So very clever. But the point is that these are the men who have the authority that if God is going to appear to somebody in order to to do something that he can't do some other way, these are the men he's going to appear to. The idea that God appears every Thursday at every meeting, or even frequently, is belied by Scripture and by every prophet who they describe the encounters with God are extraordinarily rare. They don't happen often. <coughs> and even with Joseph Smith, we have the first vision, we have the appearance in the Kirtland Temple, and we have um, the appearance in the 76th section, uh, or at least the vision that he has with Sidney Rigdon, And that's essentially it. Joseph Smith does not describe uh, frequent contact directly with the personage of God. And and when it happens, it happens for unique and remarkable reasons. And so so I, I do not blame you for your assumptions because I think I shared those assumptions for a good chunk of my life. I no longer share those assumptions, and I think that members of the church need to be taught that the idea that these men are prophets, seers, and revelators uh, means that they have the authority that if God is going to do, it's going to translate another Book of Mormon or some other really remarkable, miraculous thing, these, these are the men he's going to use to do it. But those kinds of miraculous things happen very infrequently. And these men... Uh, have as much access on a day-to-day basis to heaven as every member of the church. I think that's a principle that we don't teach nearly enough. And the thing is, we do teach it. 
you know, you go into the doctrine, and even Dallin Oaks, when he was first interviewed as a member of the first presidency, said, we do not believe in infallible leaders. It's like, well, we do believe in infallible leaders. We're, you know, it's that old cliche about Catholics not believing the Pope is infallible, but Mormons believing that leaders are infallible, even though both groups are taught the opposite. Uh, so... So the issue is the assumptions, and I think you came by your assumptions honestly, and I think your assumptions are shared by, I'd probably say, a majority of members of the church, and I think those assumptions need to be challenged, because I think we need to recognize that the authority of this man, of these men, is what gives order and structure to the church, but it does not give them more access to heaven than any individual member. Every member of the church has the right to petition heaven on any subject and to be able to have a direct encounter with the divine that gives them the testimony that they need on any idea, on any subject. And so we don't need to wait for these men to have opinions, to form our own opinions. We can have our own opinions, and they can be different from the opinions of, of the 15 leaders of the church. Uh, that's not what the, when you say the system is broken that's not what the system is designed to do the system is not designed to be on the cutting edge of social change what the system is designed to do is to save the souls of latter day saints and I think the system and, and the world and I think the system is, is doing that very effectively and, and with that, we're going to stop there. I think that's a beautiful place to stop. So when we pick up in the next one, we'll pick up kind of running through what our new assumptions should be and to see to see kind of where that falls. Um, Jim, again, I, I say it every time, but very rarely in Mormonism do you get these conversations of a back and forth between two people who disagree in a space where there's hours and hours to kind of work it out and to talk about it. So thank you. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. Cool. And uh, with that, I'll let you go, but let's. Uh, I'm looking forward to part six. All right. Thanks very much.